Welcome to Out of the Blank. To another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Miss Sheehan, it's a pleasure to have you on my show. Can you please introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Okay. Um, I'm not sure how much to say initially. Um, my name is Selena Sheehan. Um, I grew up in the USA, but I've lived in Ireland for the past 50 years. Uh, I'm an emeritus professor at uh, Dublin City University. Um, I've been active on the left my whole adult life. Um, although I definitely did not begin that way. What caused you to, I guess, become more active on the left in your adult life compared to when you started? Well, I grew up in Cold War America. Um, uh, I believed the whole narrative that America was the greatest country in the history of the world and communists were not only the political enemy, but they were a kind of cosmological, ontological evil. I mean, I believed, and millions of other people my age believed, um, that the communists were wanted to take over the world, um, turn it into some kind of prison camp, that they would even kind of even imagine sometimes they would burst into my bedroom and made me denounce my country and my parents and uh, my religion. Um, I grew up like that, and you know, I my parents didn't belong to some kind of cult. They were normal, working class Catholics, and that's what millions of people in America in the 1950s believed. And so I grew up as a, a normal child believing that. Um, however, I was a rather thinking child, and uh, I asked questions. Um, quietly at first, just trying to figure things out for myself because I perceived that my parents, my teachers, the people around me just believed what they were taught to believe. And there are a lot of other people in the world maybe that believe something else. So why should I believe something just because my parents believed it or my teachers believed it? So initially what happened was that I just sought out a more intellectual version of the same thing. I kind of um, latched on to um, Jesuits uh, who seemed to be more educated and rigorous. And um, I used to go um, to the courthouse and hang around the criminal courts and talk to judges and lawyers. Nobody in my family ever did anything like this or nobody in my school, but like I was, I was searching. Um, I became involved in politics. I became involved in the Democratic Party. I worked for the election of JFK in 1960. I got severely punished for it. Um, Why'd you get punished? Uh, well, my parents were, you know, they just thought politics is for other people. Just stay quiet and, you know, don't, don't like, take, don't attract attention. Um, I punished, well, I was punished technically because I, I played hooky from school. <laughs> I was just so into it. I just couldn't stand sitting in a classroom, listening to nuns when I wanted to go out in the world and learn what I needed to learn. 
So I was rather severely punished for that. Uh, I'm not sorry I did it. Um, and I, I continued that way, yeah. When it comes to Kennedy, though, did you look at any of his speeches that he was making? Like, what were your thoughts on this kind of young guy coming to power a little bit? Well, I was 16 and 15, 16 when I got involved, you know, in the Kennedy campaign. I used to write letters to U.S. senators with my views about this and that, like I understood anything, but I was seeking to understand. Um, I even took a train down to Washington and went into Kennedy's office and his staffers treated me very, very indulgently, I have to say. And uh, I used to, you know, write letters. My parents kept these letters for years that go back and forth between myself and they were signed by Kennedy. Some staffer probably wrote them. I met him once um, on the steps of the uh, courthouse in Upper Derby, uh, Pennsylvania during the 1960s election. Shook my hand for, you know, a second. <laughs> um, and uh, so I was, I was quite caught up in the Kennedy campaign. Um, I mean, looking back on it now, he didn't really stand for anything that was drastically different than the whole worldview I grew up believing. But he was kind of more energetic, more alive. Um, uh, you know, it just, there was just more, more of an energy and intelligence to it. He said things today that seemed normal, but back then it was kind of revolutionary in a sense. Um, I've listened to his debates versus Richard Nixon, and you know he's talking about the economy, he's talking about civil rights, he's talking about America used to be great a couple of generations ago, but the generation or the people today wouldn't recognize the generation from two decades ago. Now, how much of that was exposed compared to the knowledge we know now with a 60 years, something of document releases and information, you start to see the FBI invading Hollywood looking for communists. And I reached out to you to talk about Marxism, but this whole thing is like, I don't side politically with anything. I'll just put that right up front. Um, I don't believe in a left or right. Honestly, if you ask me what my opinions were, I'd probably say there's a deep state, uh, mostly just because I believe government officials. Deep state, by the way. <laughs> I, that's my whole thing is like when we talk about who elects who and it's four years in office and you don't really see a whole lot of change happening. I go, because there's a structured system and sadly we're in place with business. It's a capitalist structure and all these things. Things are funded. So if you try and make one change, it messes up a whole slew of business. Nobody's going to let you mess with their business, but that gets labeled a conspiracy. That's fine. Um, but it's caused me to kind of look and understand more about Marxism, understand more about communists, understand more about other religions and things that it seems like have been broad brushed for a very long time as being bad or evil or corrupt. And I'm like, well, why are we thinking this way? It's just because, and everyone goes, well, that's how it's always been. It's like, has it always been that way? I mean, does anybody think to ask the question why? And then we start diving into it and realize that there might be some injustices and some, you know, bandwagon blaming or something like that, that makes us think a certain way about something. And I, I don't like preconceived notions. Yeah, well, you know, we, we most, we grew up at that time with a lot of preconceived notions. And I did become aware in my teens of blatant injustices, um, particularly, you know, around the issues raised by the civil rights movement. I was very enthusiastic about the civil rights movement. And that is, that's one reason why I, for a, a while after 1960, I supported Kennedy and then Johnson. Um, I supported the whole idea of the new frontier, though I was only a teenager I didn't understand very well and then the new society under Johnson and you know I, I was in I was a liberal 
Um, but as the years will go on, I would develop a Marxist critique of liberalism because, you know, liberalism is only a bit of gloss on capitalism and it's the capitalist mode of production, uh, which is the structural problem um, creating all of the injustices that I saw unfolding around me. And of course, the Vietnam War was a very big factor with my generation. What was the US doing in Vietnam? What were these, you know, these these poor peasant people doing that they should be, you know, that their villages should have been destroyed and, you know, um, or if they, you know, their villages weren't destroyed, they should be maimed for their whole life. It was just horrendous. So, you know, that just opened my eyes to the systemic nature um, of all these injustices. It wasn't just, you know, some white people being cruel to some black people. Um, it wasn't just, you know, it, it wasn't the US going into Vietnam just to save the world from this evil that was communism. Um, and when I first, even when I first started protesting against the Vietnam War, it was just that it was an unjust war, um, but that didn't necessarily mean that I was for communism. Um, and it shocked me um, on the first big demos that I went uh, to in Washington, um, that people were carrying the NLF flags and saying, you know, ho, ho, ho Chi Minh, the NLF is going to win. Um, but then, you know, within a few years and learning a lot more about it, I thought the NLF did deserve to win. I actually was on the side of the enemy, uh, which kind of shocked me, you know, growing up the way I did. I would never imagine myself thinking that even when I first went to demonstrations against the Vietnam War. And then we also grew up with this whole idea of this iron curtain. I think when I was a child, I actually thought there was literally a curtain of iron. Um, but, you know, um, I, I came and, you know, for a lot of reasons I came and I lived in Europe and I crossed over from Western Europe to Eastern Europe. I lived for a time behind that so-called iron curtain. And uh, I saw things from the other side and I, I changed sides. Um, and if anybody had ever told me as a child that would happen, I, I, I could, nobody could have been more shocked. Did you realize that get, like kind of over here or at least in the States, you were getting stuck in like what I would call an echo chamber? It's like one of the things I started realizing, I guess, talking to people with various perspectives and things is that like, obviously you can sit and agree with the side you agree with the most, but if you don't try and understand the other side, you don't really get it. And I always wondered why other countries, I would say, had a different perspective of the United States compared to how we viewed it. And if you look back then, I mean, everything was blaming communism as the enemy and, you know there's a whole irrational fear that was kind of built up. But then once you kind of branched out from it, you realize that that, that fear was just created. And these people were just stuck in this bubble, I would say, like once they got the information, that's what the independent press was trying to do for the longest time was shout out that message, talk about the injustices. But the main narrative was we have to go to war in Vietnam. Why? I don't know. We're just going and it's a good thing. I'm like, OK, and then you just nod your head and kind of continue with it. Well, that re that broke down on a pretty massive scale in the 1960s. It, you know, I mean, it began with civil rights, then with the Vietnam War, um, then, you know, questioning um, gender roles, you know, why, you know, why should women stay at home and men go out to work? Um, I never, even as a young girl, I found that very hard to, um, to, uh, to think that's what I would, I, I never thought that's what I would ever do. I was never gonna be my mother. 
I mean, I became a teacher nun because they were the only women in my world that were out there doing something bigger than the work of the private home. But the thing is the atmosphere in the, the 60s, and this is on a mass scale, a mass scale. It was to question everything, not just, you know, what was going on in the South, the civil rights notes, not just, you know, why was the US in Vietnam, uh, everything. You know, why should women be at home and men go out to everything? This just opened up everything. And, and all of the basic presuppositions um, that we accepted growing up without question, they were up for grabs. And like we, we, we talked far into the night, raising questions about absolutely everything. It was an electrifying atmosphere. And um, it changed me and, and, and many people forever. Um, some people, maybe they were into it in a more superficial way and they just slipped back and they led the same kind of lives as their parents. You know, after, it was a bit of, it was a bit of useful fun and, you know, they, they got more into the dope scene than the politics scene. <laughs> but, um, um, you know, but for, for those of us that were serious about it, it, it lasted a whole lifetime. I was changed forever uh, by that atmosphere. And I was very active in the U.S. New Left um, in the late 60s and early 70s. When did the impact, I guess, start? When did you really start to experience at least a comfortability in the aspects of talking about? the way you wanted to change things or the problems that you wanted to raise that you felt like should be addressed, like the Vietnam War, like civil rights. I mean, I feel like back then, a lot of people were either going with what was going on because they just didn't know, or there was just a, a silence aspect that was, you know, nobody questioned the government. I think probably that we do it more now. Oh, well, they, then, well, they, we did radically then. We well, did I mean, radically the then. Overall general like for public. somebody that, that supported uh, Lyndon Johnson when he became president, by the time he finished, like, I just, you know, I was on the streets with people, hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? <laughs> you didn't like it when he grew his hair all out and everything? Um, <laughs> so um, it, 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 was, it was really very drastic. Um, it was very, very drastic, the whole atmosphere um, in, in the country at that time. I know it, the country is very divided now, but it's, it's on completely different lines. Um, there was a, a right and a center and a left, and now it's like between, you know, this neoliberal center and far right, and I'm 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 not there. I'm I'm on another I'm on another spectrum, um, and I find the whole atmosphere in the country now extremely alienating. Um, and also, one of the things that helped me, I mean, there was all that questioning when I still lived there. Um, and stimulated by the whole new left. But uh, I've lived out of the country for 50 years. And believe me, when you leave a country and go look at it from the outside, you, you see things in sharper relief. So for 50 years, I've been looking at the US from Europe, Western Europe, Eastern Europe, and even for intervals from Southern Africa. And it looks very different from these places. It really and truly does. And I think I see it more clearly. Now, I don't have the same, you know, close-up knowledge of people that are into it nitty-gritty of, you know, um, the midterm elections. And, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm informed about it, but, like, I'm not into the nitty-gritty of who's running here and there. I don't, in this district, in that district. But, like, I see the whole of it much more clearly than the people that are really up close, you know, get, not seeing the wood for the trees. 
Well, could you explain like the Marxist view when when you pick that up? I know when it started and kind of a little bit about the history, but I just don't know when like what it fully entails and also when it started to become at least a little bit more normal. I mean, the way I'm reading across it in documents, especially like I said, everything would be related. I've been stuck in the time period of the 60s and 70s. I think the farthest I've branched out is maybe the end of Nixon's administration. But um, it is this word that gets mentioned which it seemed like if you were reading the bible and you read the word satan like i don't i just I, i'm trying to understand it more to be able to grasp what it is and understand maybe the capacity of what the fear was of it back then um when i you know when i first got involved in the new left i didn't see myself as becoming a marxist or a communist um you can be left you know um i was a first a liberal then i was a more radical liberal and, um, but the thing is that once I started seeing all of these things as in these injustices interconnected, and I've always had a tendency to think systemically to, I always had this feeling, even when I was a child, that there were a lot of people, you know, running around, you know, forgetting to think where they were going. I always wanted to see the big picture. I always wanted to go deeper and wider. Um, Deep to state? understand to what? Deep state. Deep state. Well, yeah. I mean, that would be one of the one of the yeah. That would be one of the things. Yeah, deep state. Um, that you know. Okay, you could. And what did it mean to 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 decide to vote? You know, Democrat or Republican. You know. Okay. You know. I could list the differences. And you know when I when I did vote, you know for the first time, you had to be twenty one when I was uh, young to vote. Um, you know I voted Democrat, but like the Democratic Party, just I was very alienated from it very soon because there's a whole structure there, and it's not just the deep state; it's capitalism. It's bigger than the state, but it's it's capitalism as a global system that you know, has uh, has a strong grip on the state, no matter who's elected um, this time or that time or the other time. Yes, it makes some kind of difference, um, but not much. Um, and so I, that's what I meant by, you know, thinking systemically, not even so much the deep state, but the system that controls the deep state. That's what Marxism opened up to me. Whenever I mention deep state, usually people think I'm thinking like cloaks and stuff. I don't think that. What I think is just a system that's set up to care more about the financial than it does the personal situations. Like uh, obviously we have things on personal perspectives when it comes to Medicare and things like that that could have improvements. But when you look at the things, the wealthy keep getting more wealthy. You know, there's a top elite percent. But capitalism. Yeah, that's so. That's what I mean by deep state. Is just when you see something happen, if you look at the big picture, who's getting more money off of that and what's the business incentive? And that's where you'll see why we're making the decisions that we're making. It's not necessarily for your gain. It's for the global whoever's getting the pocket. That's not Marxism, is it? Um, <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's on the way to it. Okay. Well, a bit more to, to Marxism than that, but like it's going in that direction. Yeah. So what entails in Marxism? Could you explain just a little bit, like a couple characteristics or something for me? Well, it's, it's first of all, it's a theory about capitalism as a mode of production. First of all, it's a whole theory of history about how capitalism evolved from, you know, a more primitive society, 
um, you know, through a more sophisticated ancient society, through feudalism, to the different stages of capitalism, um, and how um, capitalism, you know, created uh, advanced industry in the working class, and the working class is meant to be the grave digger of capitalism. Not that it's quite happened, but, um, but you know, a, a theory about uh, capitalism as a mode of production, uh, where the market is prioritized over all other social ties. So it's not the market as such, which is evil. I mean, it's not buying and selling, which itself is evil because it's not. I mean, you know, we, we have a more advanced society because not everybody, you know, has to grow every bit of food they eat or build their own house or, you know, uh, their own clothes that they wear. So we have a division of labor and you know money and you know uh, you know buying and selling is you know allows you to have advanced science and technology and good universities and all this the social division of labor the problem with capitalism is not the market as such but the, that the market is prioritized over all other social ties that you know profitability in the marketplace is you know the um, the key determinant uh, of everything else. Everything else has to fall into place around it. Um, and capitalism has become especially, has become dominant, not only in um, uh, the, 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 see the means of anything that's, that's been produced, it's on any big scale. Um, you know, take Amazon, not the rainforest, the company. Um, it's been created by, centuries, decades, even some in some sense, centuries of social labor. Okay, it's a relatively new company, but what it started out selling books. So, you know, first of all, there's, you know, all of the people who cultivated the forest, you know, to create the paper of those books, authors like me that wrote books, um, editors in publishing houses, people that, you know, um, that uh, drove delivery vans, worked in warehouses, that kind of thing. So, you know, the value of Amazon, the Amazon is created is a product of social labor. So why should one person be able to own that? Okay, entrepreneurial skill is a form of, of, of labor, but why should it be so disproportionately rewarded um, in relation to the labor of all these other people? So it's a massively unjust um, control of production and distribution of wealth. Well, I would ask the question, why do they say we don't have monopolies in society? But obviously, there's some damn monopolies. Amazon started selling off books, and now they reached out to this, and they all bank on convenience. I don't get it. It's like, I think- And it is convenient. I, well, that, that's the thing is like, I think trading is fine. I think buying and selling is obviously it's, it's okay, but I think there's a fair kind of trade in a sense. But what we have now is that there's a mass scale market of producing things and then jacking up those prices, even though you can make it at half the cost and then causing the person. I mean, it's return on investment, but it sucks if you're an individual and you're not a part of like a certain class. I mean, I think the middle class has dropped down to poor. The poor are still poor, but even poorer than that, at least 10 years ago it was. I mean, it's hard to watch that. And then what I don't like is that people go, well, it's this president or it's this president. I'm like, it's not that. It's the business that's been building for 25 years. It's capitalism. Years. Oh, shit. The system. That's I, what it is. And that's a, bigger, that's a bigger problem, of course. 
the scale of the problem is, you know, is vast when you think about it that way. I just picture so, a Monopoly man with like a monocle. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember playing Monopoly. But that's, you know, that's, that's, that's what it is. So it's a theory about capitalism as a system. Um, and it's also a theory about socialism as an alternative system where, where the, the means of social production are socially owned, not privately owned. And um, decisions about, you know, what's produced, how it's produced, and how, what, how what's produced is distributed is made um, by a greater collective, basically the state, which is, you know, the, the, the you know, collective um, body of people. Could I have an example? An example? Yeah. Well, um, yeah, um, we've had a number of experiments in socialism. Um, I lived in the Soviet Union for a time doing research about Marxism. Um, it was a society where the expropriators had been expropriated. There were no oligarchs. There were, were no... Um, there were no large scale enterprises that were owned by any one person or small group. They were owned by the Soviet people. Um, farms were, you know, were, were collective farms. Um, it was, I mean, it was full of imperfections, don't get me wrong. Um, but it was, but social wealth was roughly distributed more equitably. There were no very poor people. There were no very rich people. Now, there were people that, you know, um, occupied certain positions and had access to, you know, certain goods and maybe slightly better houses. But compared to the disparity of wealth within capitalism, like that, as opposed to that, you know, vast the scale of it was was vastly different and like the argument was that oh well if somebody was you know general secretary of the communist party maybe they needed a lot more you know space and you know um a doctor to um you know to you know get away from the office every so often but they didn't own these things they didn't own anything you know khrushchev gorbachev they didn't own even a house or a doctor or a car, or anything. These things were collectively owned. Look at Cuba, um, which, you know, is, is a society where everything is more equitably distributed. It's, uh, people are relatively poor. Um, everybody is relatively poor. Um, and, um, and a lot of that is because of the U.S. blockade, rather than the fact that, you know, socialism doesn't have the capacity to be an efficient mode of production. Uh, but, you know, Cuba has been, you know, severely, um, um, you know, um, I don't, limited I don't, by I, the blockade. I don't rationalize um, Castro for, you know, I know people said that, oh, we needed to take him out. I'm like, I guess there's perspectives on both sides of that. But I'm like, can you blame a man for Kennedy? Wanting... Kennedy was up to here and that. Um, well, he made backdoor channels and the assassination attempts on Castro weren't actually Kennedy's. That was from Eisenhower's administration, but Kennedy gets the blame for it. I have documents to prove that Robert Kennedy even fought that. But a lot Castro wanted to reclaim Cuba um, and make it his and he wanted to kick the government out. He wanted to make it out. the Cuban peoples. 
Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it, you, you can understand that. I mean, that's where I say there's like two perspectives on the whole thing, but like, there's a weird thing even today that I've had to question on my own which is the fact of owning like people like their own land they like to have their name on something and that at the same time i talked to a guy who's part of this voluntary human extinction movement i swear to you it's a real thing which is just don't have kids save the planet stop having kids we need to reduce the population and i, I had to think about that i was like what do you mean he goes you're brainwashed to think that you want to have this western idea of a family and four or five different kids and it just had me looking at it different where i was like i mean yeah, people should be up to their own choice whether they want to have kids or not. I mean, everything kind of tells you in society, especially growing up, you're going to go to college, go get an education, get a degree. That doesn't do anything for you anymore. And then you just get into this area of like, okay, so how do you question something or ask something and be able to understand the information, be able to process it? And you got to go to multiple sources. You got to talk to a bunch of people. You got to communicate. I mean, I think everybody's got a different, I don't know. I fall, like I said, I fall at isolationist on all the political stuff. I mean, I try and understand everybody's perspective on it, but if you ask me, me to make a clear decision on, you know, what I would side with, I was like, I don't trust any of it. I think everybody's got their goods and bads. I was thinking I was a Marxist a minute ago until, I mean, I, I get where Lee Harvey got it from now was from going to Russia. It must be something that's from over there. And you have to think, okay, you're coming back to America that's not going to be the viewpoint over here. And that culture, you know, trying to create that there, the government wanted to squash out anything that was different than what they were creating in their little bubble. And I see documentation to prove that. And people can say, oh, that's, you're thinking about it from the other side's perspective. I'm like, well, how else are you going to view something? You can't view something if you choose that you're on a side. And I believe to stay impartial and to look at it with an open mind, you can't be left or right. You just kind of have to view it as here's both perspectives of this which one seems more ethically right to you and then that's kind of where i've been going okay I, I you know i agree with you about you know looking at you know listening looking at things from multiple perspectives um i don't agree with you about not taking sides and being impartial i mean i've spent my life you know i mean you know i really do did especially when i was young look at many alternative perspectives but like um you know they're not equally right um, sometimes, you know, a certain perspective can be persuasive. It can say, yes, this is the best possible perspective to see this. I'll commit myself to that. I mean, I've committed myself to Marxism. I still have an open mind about it. There's still a lot within Marxism that needs to be, you know, worked out. And it's an open-ended thing. Um, I don't think that, you know, I've just, you know, taken a book by Marx off the shelf. Now, that's what I think. I don't have to think anymore. Um, it's not like that. Um, but like, uh, when it comes to right and left, I've made my decision. That's fine. I'm on the left. Why? Because I was seeking truth and this is where I found it. I, I don't agree with everybody else on the left yeah. about everything. I mean, the left argues about most things most of the time. I've, I know. find problems on the left and right. I also find problem with the discussion when you ask someone who they vote for and they're like, I chose the lesser of two evils. I'm like, why don't you just vote independent? Like Jesus, like. We've, we're doing this two-party system over and over again, and whenever someone gives you the answer, they say, oh, they'll never win. I'm like, how do you know if you don't freaking try? Well, that system is set your, – your electoral system is set up to be like that. It is very hard. You know, I mean, I think that you know, there is a good case voting for you know, third-party candidates in various elections. But like, there is always the, the lesser evil argument, and the, you know, the more evil is always so bloody evil that it's, you know, it pulls you that way. Europe isn't like that. Africa isn't like that. You know, we have a multi-party system. 
a real multi-party system, you know, where it's not just this one or that one. Um, you know, we have a we have a much fuller spectrum. We have, you know, radical leftists in our national parliament in Ireland. Took us a long time to, you know, to get that, but like that's important. Um, you know, there are many other things that are important to do, but it would be much harder to do that there. I think there's extremes on both sides. Like when I started looking into Timothy Leary and people talked about the weather underground, whether they were doing things for social change, I mean, an accidental death could happen with one of the bombs that they had. So I had to understand that. But then you look at you look at the other side. I mean, if you're at a college campus and the CIA is infiltrating there and they're using people for their own advantage in military or to gain intelligence information during the Cold War, they created a fake magazine called The Rational Observer. I have faults on both sides with the activism aspect and also the fact that we're allowed we're allowing this on college institutions the thing is where i say i don't choose a side i should probably clarify is the fact that i don't let it stop the conversation i kind of want to like if you're willing to talk to someone from an opposite side of yours or just be able to enhance that discussion without getting into a debate i think that whole platform of how we label things debates is so bad I just go, I mean, what do you, you got people talking over each other, shouting, and they're just insulting each other. I mean, whatever that to me, that's a show it's Jersey yeah. shore. I'm yeah, like, yeah. if you want to talk about ideas and exchange of ideas comes from a foundation of conversation, a, a thing of sharing. It doesn't mean you necessarily have to agree with me. It just means you understand where I'm coming from. Yeah. I mean, you know, back to the, you know, the sixties and, you know, I thought Timothy Leary talked a lot of nonsense. Um, I saw I was against the weather underground, but mind you, I, I, I respected, I admired them in a way. I think that they, you know, they, they were true believers. They really were, you know, trying to make a better world. I don't think you do that by bombing people. Mostly they bomb themselves. Yeah. Um, um, but, uh, you know, it's, you know, it's it's just not all equal. Um, the the left has been the left puts forward um, a worldview that, on the whole, is more credible, it's more comprehensive, it's more credible, it's more grounded than anything else on the horizon. Um, I mean, I sc scrutinize it. You know, um, constantly. I have to. I defend it in public constantly. Um, and I just think that, you know, you seek the truth and sometimes you find it. Not not whole, <laughs> um, not in a tidy package, but you find a path, maybe. Um, not so much a finished thing, but you find a path. You find a way to, to map everything in relation to everything else. And I think this is this has been, you know, the biggest, the biggest thing in my life in that sense. There was one uh, a couple of years ago. There were students um, on on my campus doing a vox pop, um, and they put a microphone in front of me and they said, "What's the most important thing you've you know learned from your from your life?" <laughs> and like, I was walking around thinking of something more practical, and, but I thought the importance of having a worldview. And they looked at me like, that's odd. That's very different from all the other answers we got. I said, what were all the other answers? They said, oh, mostly about drinking. <laughs> um, 
But, um, you know, I want to see university, so. I would have said the longest time, I probably would have avoided the left for a very long time, just because I always felt like I was being talked down to whenever we talked about conversational ideas about things. But then I never agreed with the right either. Like there's sometimes I'm agreeing with someone in the conversation and then they go to complete 1984 George Orwell or world control order. I'm like, nope, this is where I tap out. Like, Jesus, can we just find a happy medium? And then I, I started to understand more about the history that goes on with the left and a little bit of suppression aspects. So I'm like, even with the weather underground, bombing innocent people isn't good, but also trying to strike a throw a rock at a giant brick wall that is literally stopping any other dissenting voices or anything that didn't have the official narrative or opinion. I mean, J. Edgar Hoover, I've seen the photos of him in a dress. The mob had photos of him in a dress, and that's why he never acknowledged them. And that gets that gets labeled a conspiracy. I still didn't even validate it when I saw the photos, but he never acknowledged the mob. And he was looking for homosexuals. He was looking for so much thing. Maybe that was the times. And I'm trying to understand it with the perspective. It was I have the now. times. I mean, I, I was, you know, the FBI. I was, you know, I was one of. The, I was on the list of suspects for the media. 1971 do you remember that or do you know about that you weren't there freaking 24 i don't know i don't know uh, yeah sorry but like it's a famous case the media fbi office was broken into oh the censorship office yeah yeah and okay. the, the, that's where they the left discovered the whole uh cointel pro mockingbird program. and all that yeah so that was like people i mean i i didn't actually do it um i would have been proud if i had by the way uh, but I didn't, and they were. But there were people I knew, and I was on the list of suspects, and um, that the FBI hounded over that. Can I ask you? Just like it's probably different from your studies here. But I want to get your perspective on this. What do you think about the idea that there's always, whenever we try and do change, or we ever we meet someone that have, might have an opposing view, there's a reaction to want to change that. Is like a normalicity or a normalization aspect to, I guess we like groups. I mean, you can see that on social media, there's writers guilds and there's all this, but they're private communities sometimes because the fear of trolls, people that'll break in and maybe be more hatred, which sucks is that, that we have to do that because there are people in our society that just want to cause chaos in a sense. But at the same time, I'm like, there is this, like, if you don't agree with me, then I can try and change you. But then also there's a walk away. And I'm like, I don't, there's a way to create like a, I mean, I have friends from all sides of the spectrum and friends that won't talk to each other, refuse to even be in the same podcast or anything because of their viewpoints are so in the Kennedy assassination specifically, but so detailed and so different, but they agree with most things, but it's that one little detail. And I'm like, well, we all agree. Let's stick with the main point, which is that we all agree in this, you know, basis. And it's like, no, no. And then there's like back history. And I'm like, what there's a way to fix that or there's a way to do that and i think when you like the people are really strong like you see the amazing change that goes on i mean in a matter of you know 10 years five years we could not recognize five years ago 10 years ago 15 and even more and i'm like there's a way to like just not just tweet about it we can conversate about it and i don't, I don't know if that's like a i'm not trying to well, seem like too, a you know tweets are a conversation too i i quite like social media i'm not i'm not sure you know yeah. what musk is going to do with Ban it forever. what he's going to turn twitter into but i quite like twitter and facebook um i like social media i i do find real conversation um more on facebook you could you know you can write something that's a, a wee bit longer and but like I find Twitter when there's a kind of running story and all of this and um, the, I like the immediacy of it. And I don't know what's what it's going to turn into, or what might replace it. But I think generally my point is I think social media is a good thing. 
I mean, okay, it's not like the only way to interact, you know, there's this, um, there's conversations that I have, you know, running into people on campus or whatever. Um, but, um, you know, it, it, it extends the reach of conversation. Um, I mean, because I only, I live in Dublin and like, you know, I can't really have, you know, that many conversations by other means with people in, you know, California or Holland I wouldn't have or... met you without the internet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, imp I, I cut social media off. I only post once a day. I, I, my life has increased happier. Mostly. I don't know if it's because of my newsfeed or the, I, I do follow various sides. So you see a whole, it's so much where your brain's like, I don't know where to go. I'm just going to take an Advil and relax. And at that point, it was just better to stay off of it. I mean, I find that if you get people in an individual conversation, which is why I kind of do the show like this, is that you get to learn more and you get to kind of talk it out. And like, it's hard, especially with tweeting. It's a little bit the characters that are a little bit too long. But I'm like, there's I've seen spaces where people have kind of and it's it, that's even that's still difficult because there's a disconnect. You don't see a person's face on Twitter spaces and um anybody can control the room unless you had a moderator on things. But I'm like, if one actually goes together well, like Dane Cook, if you ever know, he's an actor, you know who he is. He does some Twitter spaces that are like pretty political, but he has like both sides come in and like talk about it. I'm like, well, this is interesting because nobody's cutting each other off. You get the full time to say what you want. And then people just go do this back and forth. And it's not like some of those people even end up following each other. So it's like not like it just needs to be like slam the door in their face and walk away. And I'm like, I think that's really easy to do. I think the issue where I had at a time with the left was like this woke movement part things. There's things I agree with, but I also agree with like, in some aspects, like dude, when I'm learning about the sixties and seventies and I'm not, I don't side with left or right, but you hear about the horrible things of looking for communists and the way that they would interrogate people with LSD and mind control people and using MK ultra and all this, you want to get mad and you want to attack. And I'm like, well, you got to process that information. And a lot of people aren't processing that they hear one hole about attack on this side or that. And then they run out into the world and start screaming at everybody. I'm like, hang on, let's, figure out what this is. Let's calm down. Let's find a rational way to tackle the solution or tackle this problem and get real change going. I don't think that's crazy to think. No, no, it's not. Okay. No, it's not. And I mean, Twitter, Twitter is just like kind of one thing. It's supplementary to many other things. That's the way I see it, but it definitely adds something. Um, and I, I follow all kinds of people and vice versa. And, you know, um, and on Facebook, too. I mean, I have Trump supporters, you know, my, among my Facebook friends. I mean, I didn't go out seeking them, but they're people I grew up with, my own family. <laughs> so, um, so I, you know, I'm exposed to all points of view. And sometimes I, I don't interact. You know, sometimes I just, oh, right, that's how, you know, that's how they're conceptualizing it. And I move on. You know, I don't always engage, but I still take it in. Um, I only engage where I think it's productive. Um, maybe sometimes it's just a chance of it being productive or whatever. But I think social media really adds something. They don't, you know, kind of replace a lot of other things like this or, you know, um, many other kinds of interaction. Um, but it's, you know, they're, they're all complementary to each other if you you're in control of them in a certain kind of way. Do you think it's been you, you do have to be in control of them? Do you think it's been easier to be able to talk about Marxism a little bit more with the access of social media 
I find that like you get a lot of viewpoints sometimes that are outside of your own United States or anything that you could be confined into. And once you start kind of, like I said, understanding Islam, just even saying that people go, what? Like people listening would just be shocked. But I'm like, go listen to the episode. Like the dude, he might've only talked some good parts about it. But when I was understanding the Ottoman empire and realizing the idea of Christianity and I'm not religious at all. So Christianity is I don't I don't know what that means. It doesn't have any effect on me. And being able to understand another religion on the basis of where you look at this society has been profoundly Catholic or Christian. And you kind of understand like, okay, so I understand why it was demonized, but let's take out that brainwashing or erase whatever that preconceived notion is and be able to open up and access it a little bit more and understand it more. I think social media has done that. Yeah, it's it's played a role in that, definitely. Um I, you know, I think it's a good thing. Um, you we got to get I over certainly... the having a president that has to be a Christian man with a family. That's nuts to me. I don't understand why we still do that. No, I, I don't know. At least like, you know, there's one that wasn't white, but that's, you know, that's something. But um, yeah, but a lot of your, a lot of the rest of the world isn't like that, by the way. Um. There are a lot of presidents and prime ministers in the rest of the world that aren't um, that aren't male, that aren't white, that don't have children. In fact, our well, we have a situation um, where there, there are three parties in a coalition, and the two biggest ones rotate the office of prime minister, right? Um, and so, you know, the one that's uh, that's now there, who's going to be replaced by the other one in December. He's, you know, yeah, white man with, you know, married Catholic children. But the one replacing him, who was also previously prime minister, he's not. He's not white. Um, he's not heterosexual, doesn't have children. Um, he probably isn't a believer. That's what scares me is like I look at some of these hoover documents and I, I like i said i'm gonna keep relating things to the 60s and 70s because where i've just found the most evidence of like holy crap what is going on and it was like to look for an fbi agent to play themselves in a movie he had to be no drug issues no alcohol no divorce no separations had to have no duis and it's like basic stuff i guess for a resume but even if you had a communist view if you were holding hands with somebody that was a man or the same gender as you, that was noted as well. And you weren't allowed to play them on the screen. And it was just like, you guys had like, I, I, I get it from their standpoint, but then I look at it from like the lenses of today. And it's like, you really went in the horrible direction, which would have been even scarier if that would have continued to like today's time. Like we wouldn't have known that all this was going on, but you saw how difficult it was. I mean, I think even the Yankee Doodle Dandy, there's evidence to prove that that person had viewpoints that were of like Cuba and a little bit more of this activist type stuff. And he did that to create the Yankee Doodle Dandy to get J. Edgar Hoover off of his back. I had a friend that wrote a book on it and looked through the documents of the FBI files and everything. And it's like, I don't know. That's his perspective, I guess. And the information he came across, there's might probably be another one out there. I got to talk to and understand it more, but it's like, you really saw the silencing of anything that was different. And that is a lot different than today, um, mostly because there's a lot more change than it was 40 years ago, 30 years ago. But the, oh, the 1950s, it was so close down. It was so close down. It's just the idea, though, that imagine if it stayed the same, you know, 
as people, we stayed with the same conclusions, the same basis on everything. And we just wanted people to look exactly like us and be exactly like us. I'm like, that's the nine to five worker. Like that's the, the, the thing for the capitalist system, basically to just keep pumping and feeding the machine. It's like we were brainwashed to be that. I don't know. That's might be conspiracy. I don't think it's conspiracy. Mm. Yeah. But Europe is very different. And I mean, it's, you know, capitalism still prevails, but it's a, it's it's very different from America. Um, there are just many, many more perspectives in play um, more of the time. Would you recommend to people that are of a younger generation to travel and try and get that experience of another perspective? Yeah, but find a way to do it where, you know, you could interact more meaningfully. Like if you were doing it, maybe like do a series of podcasts, you know, well, you know, while you're at it. Or, but like a way that you interact more meaningfully, this idea of just like getting a Eurorail and you walk into this city and you walk around and then, you know, go into a bar and then you go into another city and you just walk around and see all the tourist attractions. I don't think that really gets you very far. I've known people from America that went to Europe and it's just a list of places where they've been, you know. So, you know, people that come maybe to, to you know, to, on a student exchange or, or to work or, you know, so I'd recommend that people have the opportunity to, you know, come to Europe or Africa or Asia, Latin America for that matter, to, to do it in a way where you can meaningfully interact, not just, you know, walk around, you know, capital cities and swim in the sea or whatever. Swimming at the sea is nice, by the way, in Southern Europe. Um, but um, yeah, just a way to interact meaningfully with people. What was the biggest revelation in your life, I would say? Like something that you just came across and kind of completely changed you for the better? Um, it's a big question. Yeah. Well, the biggest thing that happens, what I already told you, is like, you know, moving to the left. But that didn't happen like in a sudden incident or anything. That just kind of came gradually. Um, the second biggest thing that happened again, it's a world historical thing and it happened kind of suddenly. It didn't change me or anybody else for the better, but um, was kind of the overturning of um, a movement from socialism to capitalism in Eastern Europe. That was a big shock to me. I mean, I saw it happening. I was in Eastern Europe a lot as it was happening. But still the rapidity of, you know, these um, societies being turned upside down. Um, it wasn't for the better. I mean, some things are for the better. I mean, the Berlin Wall coming down and this wall right in the middle of, you know, when you're in East Berlin or West Berlin, you're always in half a city. You know, I don't regret the wall came down. Um, I think it's good that people can, you know, travel more freely. Everybody can travel more freely, people from the West as well as the East than they could before. But, um, you know, there's been mass impoverishment, the creation of an oligarchy, um, all kinds of ethnic tensions among people that, you know, live peacefully together. The current war in Ukraine is you know, just one more bit of the chaos that resulted from all of that. Um, and, but that was, a, you know, the, the two biggest things that happened in my life was, you know, coming to the left myself, and then seeing this turned about, this, this counter-revolution, really, um, that I never expected to see. I saw 
from the time I became left, um, especially from the time I became um, a Marxist. Um, I saw the world as moving in however long and complicated and difficult a way from capitalism to socialism. And then here, suddenly within, you know, the space of a few short years, in a significant part of the world, it went the opposite way. So I had to really, that was a real challenge to me to think through um, and to live through. And a big challenge for a lot of the people that, you know, didn't become oligarchs um, to live through. Is there a halt in progress? Like, do you think that we would probably be farther ahead if there was another thing at the forefront, like if it wasn't a capitalist system or if it wasn't this, you think we'd be way farther than where we're at now? I think the only way to survive is socialism. I think the whole planetary emergency that we're in, um, I don't think it can be solved under capitalism um, because the profit motive is too dominant. And like what the, the imperatives of ecology go against the trajectory of capitalism. I think there can be some reforms. I don't have a lot of hope for what's happening in COP27 this week. I think even, you know, with, within their narrow boundaries, they're going to make pledges that they're going to break. But even those pledges wouldn't sort out the real planetary emergency. I think that social, there, there, you know, there once was a phrase, uh, socialism or barbarism. Yeah. Um, I think now it's socialism or extinction. I think it's the only way to survive. Now, what are the forces that can make that happen? Um, we're too weak. Those of us that believe that we're too weak to make that happen. Um, I'm, you know, I've, uh, Gramsci once spoke about, you know, um, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. So I tend to be very pessimistic intellectually looking at it, but I still have kind of determination and hope just to, you know, what can I do? I can just make the case. I'm relatively powerless, but I'm not totally powerless. Um, and that's what I can do. But will it be enough that, you know, the number of people in the world who think the way I do can make what needs to happen happen? Hard to see. I don't think we think that different. I think we think a little bit probably same. We probably have different strong viewpoints on some things. I'm more like, uh, you know, kind of like, I'm going to stay out of that one when it comes to certain things, but obviously I have strong convictions on some things, uh, mostly when it comes to, honestly, it's just treating people with respect. If you treat people with respect, they give you respect back. I mean, that's the easiest thing to do. And sometimes people don't really follow that. And that's why only... you treat everybody with equal respect. Do I do you respect Trump? I have never met the man. I'd have to meet him. Well, I mean, as a public figure, not, you don't have to meet him in person. Do you respect is, him? Is he considered a public figure? Yes, he is. I'm sorry. I don't, like I said, I've been stuck in the 60s and 70s. He is a public figure. I don't know. I don't watch TV. What do you want from me? I don't. Okay. I don't. I don't, well, do, you, I don't do, you consider... respect, do you respect Jay Edgar Hoover? Looking back, uh, like I, I would have to meet him to try and understand his viewpoint. I've talked to both sides, people that are fans of his, and you know him being a purist. I don't like the whole notion of being you know against homosexuals or against communists without even you know taking the chance to understand them but i mean that's a that would be like asking me what i want to meet jfk or what I, I don't admire jfk either i think he said some pretty good stuff but i'm not 100 percent. i don't know the man i gotta 
meet the guy to be able to make my own decisions. I don't trust news sources. I don't trust that. I don't know what Biden's like unless I've met Biden either. I don't respect Biden. You don't respect Biden? No. Okay. Is he because he forgets a lot? I forget some things. I don't respect Trump either. I mean, I'm with you on that. I think so, Biden is actually, I think the Democrats are actually worse in foreign policy than, of course, you know, Trump and his foreign policy is all over the place. I don't respect what's his name. Um, Oh, God, I'm going to blank on the mayor of New York. What's his Blasio? He lost $950 million to a fund in mental health. I want to see his damn receipts. Where'd I didn't know that. I where'd didn't you, know about that. Where'd yeah. you lose nine? It was a fund given to him, $950 million for a fund specifically for mental health, and he lost it. You don't know where it is. I didn't understand that. That's what I'm saying. I, I like that's what I don't respect is because I know somebody's using the money for something. I don't know where it's going. It's in, it's like that in every aspect, and that's the stuff I don't get. I don't like people getting cheated out of something that's rightfully supposed to be for them. Like when people donate, I don't have I have a problem with a charity using those donations for themselves or giving. But you it don't to respect them. people that do that. That's belittling someone. It's not treating them with respect back. Okay. But I still have to meet the individual too. I'd have to meet Bellasio and just stare at him and say, "Did you get a hot tub or something?" <laughs> I I don't know. I like I said, I got trying my best to talk to as many people as I can to understand, you know, this thing as well too. But I think, I mean, have you ever been told that you were supposed to hate somebody and then you end up meeting that person or knowing that person and end up not believing what people have told you before? We all have bad interactions with people. Maybe. I mean, I've lived a long time, so I've experienced most things. Um, I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but well, I mean, yeah, I can. I mean, the whole world I grew up with, the, the, the world I described to you, I was, you know, told I should hate communists, communists were the enemy, and then I, became, I met them and I became one. So yeah, on a big scale, yeah. Did you ever meet, Definitely. you said you meet JFK, did you ever meet Hoover? No, I never met Hoover. Would you want to meet him? Maybe. You probably smell sulfur, right? Yeah, but, you know, <laughs> if, I, if I had some kind of confrontation, I, I wouldn't shy away from it if I thought there was some point to it, even to explore. This is just a hypothetical, but I mean, if there was time travel, I would really like to know what that person was like in their public life compared to what you what we know about them doing in their private scenarios like even lyndon johnson he was not he was not the best the secret service didn't like him he would pee on their shoes and things of that sort and i i just i want to know that like what this the experience was like to meet that person because i think there's some people in history that obviously get glorified or written down in a certain way but then the people that might be labeled the horrible or the evil ones might actually not be necessarily like that like timothy leary gets blackballed but i've talked to defenders and people that hate them and it's just like it makes it a complicated situation especially when you're looking from a historical standpoint to try and figure out who this character was what did he do you can look at a journal but i mean even then it's like you're only looking at what this person's thoughts might be not the essence of who the character of the being is yeah well i, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show i know we kind of went all over the place but is there a place where people can find your links um, well, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I use my own name, not um, not as some kind of pseudonym. Um, I have just um, if they Google my name, they'll find various publications. I'm very findable um, because I'm an author. Um, so, yeah, I'm very easily to, easy to find. 
Well, I'm going to link all your links in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting with you, and I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. And thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode. Out of the blank.